Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual, Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. We're basically in the doldrums of the February recess. There's no arguments or opinions to speak of. So we're going to take today to jump into the basically ongoing discussion around the legal recruitment work uh, performed by uh, Chief Justice John Roberts' wife, Jane Roberts, and potential any ethical issues that that raises. And there were a pair of stories this week that kind of shed some light on the details of that recruitment work that's made kind of some waves this week. That's right. And in a few minutes, we're actually going to have a legal recruiter on the show, Karen Vladek of Whistler Partners, to kind of help us peel the curtain back a little bit on that world and just how it intersects with the story that we're going to be talking about. But Jimmy, before we get into that, can you unpack the story a little bit for us? Yeah. So on Tuesday, there's this pair of reports uh, published in the New York Times and in Politico, and they reveal that a former colleague of Jane Roberts at a recruitment firm she used to work at has come forward to Congress and the Department of Justice claiming that she basically has received millions of dollars in commission payments from these large law firms that then go on to have business before the Supreme Court. And so this letter to Congress and the DOJ from this former colleague is kind of raising the alarm about these potential ethical conflicts presented by the nature of the Chief Justice's work. That's right. And Jane Roberts has been a recruiter for quite a while now, right? Yeah. So Jane Roberts, um, like her husband, John Roberts, was used to be a a partner at a major law firm, a litigator, in fact, at a firm called Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman um, before leaving the world of litigation and big law firms to go to this legal recruitment firm. And the reason she did that was precisely because of the ethical issues raised by her husband's uh, now work, now job as the Chief Justice of the United States. And she you know, was on record as saying it was basically awkward to continue working at the firm with her husband's new position. So you know, there's kind of an irony now that having transitioned to the world of legal recruiting and worked in that field for the last two decades or so, new ethical issues are being raised about her supposed ties to these law firms that then go on to have business before the Supreme Court. But in any event, let's wind back to after she joins this firm. Major Lindsay in Africa, one of the bigger legal recruitment firms in the country. It's there that she becomes colleagues with a man named Kendall Price. Now, Kendall Price, another legal recruiter for Major Lindsay in Africa, eventually goes on to work for the firm for several years before being fired in 2013. After he is fired, he sues Major Lindsay in Africa, including Jane Roberts as a defendant for wrongful termination. Now, this story that we're talking about this week comes out of kind of the protracted litigation surrounding Price's firing, because in the course of that lawsuit, he was able to obtain documents that he has now shared with the leaders of the House and Senate Judiciary Committee, as long with top officials in the Department of Justice, basically documenting some more details about the work that Jane Roberts is actually doing as a legal recruiter showing that she is, in fact, making these large sums from many of these firms that would go on to argue cases. Now, I just want to be clear here, these are not you know, the, the attorneys that she's placing with the firms. There's no allegation that these are the actual lawyers that are going to litigate cases in the Supreme Court. These have to do with you know, partners in other practice areas of these very large law firms. 
Yes, and in fact, Jane Roberts has said in previous reporting that she's taken steps to not be working with um, attorneys who had have an active practice before the Supreme Court. So what exactly is this evidence that Price is bringing to the DOJ and to lawmakers? So one piece of evidence that he has provided to potential investigators are these commission payments for recruiting work um, between 2007 and 2014 that Jane Roberts made in the course of you know placing these very high-powered attorneys at these very lucrative big law firms. So among the many clients that she had during that time period was the former Secretary of Interior, Ken Salazar, whom she was successfully able to place at a firm that many of our listeners probably know, Wilmer Hale. So this is a firm with an extensive Supreme Court practice, and she was reportedly able to make a large fee based on you know the large salary that Salazar was ultimately given in his first year as an attorney at the firm. We're talking like well over six figures here. So that was one piece of the evidence that um, Kendall Price furnished to Congress and the DOJ. Another interesting aspect of his contacts with potential investigators is this legal ethics opinion. So he goes out and obtains a legal ethics opinion from a law professor at Pace University Elizabeth Hobbs School of Law. His name is Bennett Gershman. And Bennett Gershman, I haven't actually seen a copy of the legal uh, ethics memorandum, but my understanding from Politico in New York Times' reporting is that he basically raises a lot of potential ethical conflicts presented by Jane Roberts' work as a high-powered legal recruiter, especially you know, with attorneys that are ultimately placed at firms that have business before the court. And Gershman says, quote, it is plausible that the chief justice's spouse may have leveraged the prestige of judicial office to meaningfully raise their household income. Now he goes further and he basically like talking about the 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 Sal- going back to Salazar, he says that the recusal statute should have required Chief Justice Roberts to recuse himself from participating in Wilmer Hale's 27 cases that it argued before the Supreme Court between 2013 and 2017. So very strong uh, bright line uh, opinion from Professor Gershman submitted to Congress in the DOJ. Strong and pretty big claim. Has the chief justice or his wife responded to these? Not directly. So a spokeswoman for the Supreme Court says that all the justices have followed all the financial disclosure laws and the code of conduct for federal judges. Now, quick point on the code of conduct for federal judges it does not officially bind the justices of the Supreme Court. It is binding upon lower court judges that sit on the federal courts of appeals and federal district courts. But as we've talked about, you know, probably ad nauseum for our listeners on this show, uh, the justices don't have a binding code of conduct. Um, A lot of legislation is working to change that, but for now they don't. So they are left to their own devices to consult the code of conduct that binds other justices. But uh, the spokeswoman for the Supreme Court, Patricia McCabe, She also cited a 2009 advisory opinion, and this was published by the judiciary, that states that a judge, quote, need not recuse merely because a law firm appearing before the judge engaged the judge's spouse, either currently or in the past, to recruit an additional lawyer. So that advisory opinion is basically what Roberts and uh, his wife Jane Roberts are relying on to continue to have this arrangement. Now, what about the DOJ or Congress, the recipients of the letter that Kendall Price sent? Are they going to investigate this issue? 
it is unclear. Um, the DOJ, I don't believe, has commented on having received this letter. However, um, Dick Durbin, who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he released a, an interesting but mostly ambiguous statement as to whether he finds this to be like a clear ethical violation, only saying that you know it's pretty troubling and that Basically, we should pass his proposed <laughs> legislation, the Supreme Court Ethics Act, requiring justices to adhere to the same ethics standards as the rest of the federal judi- judiciary. So we don't know what's going to come out of this, if anything. And it's kind of definitely gotten people people talking, uh, different opinions being exchanged on social media. Is this unethical? Is this a conflict? What, what should be done about this, if anything? Um, there was an interesting... Uh, press release released by our one of our past guests on the show, Gabe Roth of Fix the Court, that basically said this just is yeah definitely more fuel to the fire of ramping up, if not you know clamping down on this specific instance, uh, definitely the ethic ethical rules rules of the road for justices of the Supreme Court who, as we've said, are left to themselves to kind of police their own conduct and potential conflicts. So this one is definitely. A bit complicated, right? There's a lot of moving pieces, which you just very elegantly laid out for us. But then there's this whole aspect also of how legal recruiting works, because it can feel a little bit indirect, right? That she's getting paid to help an attorney get placed with a law firm, an attorney who is not being seen um, in front of the court, who's not necessarily arguing in front of the court, and that this will somehow have some influence on her husband. So to kind of help us shed some light on just how the kind of mechanics of legal recruiting works and how that might intersect with this particular story and these particular claims of judicial ethics issues, I'd like to welcome our special guest this week, Karen Vladek, a legal recruiter at Whistler Partners. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us and helping to just kind of uh, peel the curtain back a little bit on um, the recruiting world. You know, for, for us in the legal press, and I think for so many, the first time we ever learn of a major law firm hire is usually when it's being announced by the law firm. You know, it's through press release. It's through, you know, one of our Law 360 stories on the hiring. Um, but I imagine there's a lot of behind the scenes contacts and negotiations before that. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of legal recruiters and kind of like what folks like yourself do and how this all works? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I was a litigator for 13 years before I went into recruiting and I had actually never used a recruiter to make any of my moves. So I, like probably many of your listeners, were not super familiar with how it works. And I'm always a little bit surprised when I talk to lawyers pretty far along in their career who don't quite know exactly what a legal recruiter does. So legal all legal recruiters are not created equal, right? There is no bar to legal recruiting. If you guys said after this call, hey, that sounds interesting, I want to be a legal recruiter, you could go out and call yourself that. What I'm talking about in this podcast is the legal recruiters of the Jane Roberts variety, right? So those who are working in the super elite high-end levels of legal recruiting, not the ones who are spamming your inbox with a thousand, I have an opportunity in Cleveland, Ohio for a litigator and sending it to a corporate person in Delaware. I'm talking about people who are representing the top really 
you know, 5% of lawyers, which is the, the kind of work that we do at Whistler as well. And so somebody like Jane Roberts, you know, she's been doing this for 20 years. She has leveraged lots of relationships with clients, meaning law firms on one end and with individual candidates on the other end, meaning the lawyers themselves. And the way that the process works is that candidate essentially becomes represented by somebody like Ms. Roberts, who then takes that candidate's candidacy to their clients, to the law firms, and presents them. And that presentation process looks different for every candidate. But a lot of times you are using connections at the firm that you have. Um, she obviously has, meaning Miss Roberts, obviously has an amazing reputation. And so it get, it helps people pick up the phone, right? She knows how to package lawyers. Um, and then on the flip side, she then represents them in the negotiation of what that lawyer's package looks like. So the best analogy that I can come up with is, you know, when Michael Jordan was at the peak of his career and he was leaving the Bulls, he could have gone to any team, but he didn't go and negotiate his contract by himself. He used his agent, right? And legal recruiting is no different. If you are at the top of your game and you have a book of three, five, 10, some of these lawyers have $30 million portable books. You're not knocking on the firm's door and saying, hey, let me negotiate. You're using a professional who knows what other lawyers have gotten. Um, it can really give a lot of good insight, especially when you're, you know, a lot of firms have what's called black box compensation. So they're not going to know what the other lawyers in the firm makes and the firm's never going to disclose that to them. Well, a recruiter who has placed at those firms knows what somebody with that, that you know, rough book would get. So that's how the recruiter works with the candidate. When it comes to how is the recruiter compensated, which is probably your next question. It definitely the was. Indus <laughs> the industry standard. I saw you opening your mouth and I was like, she's going to ask me, how does the recruiter get paid? So the, the candidate, so the lawyer themselves doesn't pay the recruiter anything. The recruiter gets paid when the placement is complete and the lawyer um, starts. And at that point in time, now every every recruiting firm and law firm have different relationships. And some, some there are some special circumstances like a law firm has retained a recruiting company to open an office for them, right? That may change the terms. The industry standard terms, sort of like how realtors have that industry standard, you know, 5% that gets split is... 25% of the lawyer's first year salary. So, you know, I, I'm sure you guys, you know, talked about this on the pod, but there's, you know, one of the things in the um, New York Times article was Miss Roberts disclosed a $690,000 fee that she received. So usually what happens is the 25% that is paid to the recruiting company the actual recruiter gets a percentage of that, right? So it could be 50%, 60%. It all depends on what their commission structure is with their own individual company. So it, it could be that, you know, her, her company, McCray, got a $1.2 million fee, right? Which would be a lawyer whose first year comp was somewhere about four and a half to $5 million, which is very high and not typical, but it certainly happens, right? There are lawyers who make $5 million a year and her recruiting company would get 25% of that fee and then she would get some percentage of that percentage. Yeah, and and as you mentioned, she was working with some really just big names. Ken Salazar, I know, was one of them. Yeah. It was mentioned. Uh, he was placed with Wilmer Harrell, I believe. But so the 25%, though, that's being paid by the attorney? Mm -hmm. 
or by the law firm? No, I th- no, I think no, by the law firm. By- the law, law firm. firm. Okay. The law firm always pays. So the, it, the candidate yeah. doesn't pay anything. The law firm pays for it, for all of the fee. So I think that's really good background. And we're obviously talking about the, the top echelon of the le- legal recruiting world when these fees can be in the, you know, well above six figures. Now, I'm wondering what your reaction was upon seeing, you know, this, this scrutiny being given to, to Jane Roberts, um, mm-hmm. knowing that firms like Wilmer Hale actually have business, like extensive Supreme Court practices, where mm-hmm. her husband is the chief justice. Now, what's kind of ironic is that she, le- she like yourself, used to be a litigator in the legal yeah. world and left, ironically, out of kind of the awkwardness of being in that world because of her uh, husband's position as the chief justice. But is this all, does this concern you at all? Or is this all just basically a big nothing burger? I mean, honestly, I think it's a nothing burger. I am not a legal ethics expert. I have not parsed what the legal ethics opinions say on this front, but I'm going to tell you how it is in reality, right? Which is Washington, D.C., particularly the Supreme Court bar, is an extremely small world. They all know each other, right? Whether or not Jane Roberts got a recruiting fee to place a lawyer at the firm where these Supreme Court litigators operate is frankly kind of irrelevant to how Justice Roberts is going to vote on a case. If you were to take every single conflict that the justices have in their D.C. lives, none of them could hear any cases because there's so many conflicts between their personal friends, who their kids go to school with, you know, people who they worked with in private practice, people who used to clerk for them, all of those things, those those connections are just so rampant in DC society and culture that it would almost be impossible. Now, I know that the question is, yeah, but his wife got paid for it. Well, so imagine that um, somebody clerked for the justice, right? And then it goes to a law firm and refers a friend to another firm, right? Okay, so the the clerk doesn't get paid. But that friend goes to another firm that is before the court and sends the clerk tons of business after, right? Like a multi, multi multi-million dollar case. Now, did the person get a direct check in their pocket for it? No, but they're still getting money. Like, and so it's, it's one of those things where if you think about it in that regard and like, of course, we're never going to stop somebody who refers someone to a firm from appearing. But like y- you can take this to its kind of ridiculous extreme, which is, A, she said she's not actually placing Supreme Court lawyers. Mm-hmm. Right. So like these are in like the antitrust. Not, it's not, it's or not like, like she's that, yeah. placing the lawyers who are appearing before him Two, it's his wife. It's not him. Three, I would be shocked if there was an iota of proof that there was some indication that Justice Roberts' vote was swayed or changed by his wife placing a lawyer at a firm that, by the way, has like 2,000 lawyers at it, right? Like, this isn't a four-person firm. It's Wilmer Hale. It has, I think Wilmer has something like 700 partners and like almost, it's, it's enormous, right? And it's not even the lawyer that's appearing before him. It's the firm of the lawyer appearing before him. It's like, gosh, how many rabbit holes do we need to go down to try to find something here? And again, like, I just haven't seen any proof or any indication that Justice Roberts is siding with the firms 
where she has placed a lawyer in another practice group any more than he's siding with a conservative case or, or a liberal case. Like, I mean, if you want to talk about ethics, we can talk about the fact that justices are voting along party lines in 95% of their cases that come up, right? Like that's a potential ethical issue. They're not actually ruling on the merits of the case. This is like, oh my God, how deep down a rabbit hole do you need to get to try to find something that isn't there to me? Right. No, I, I, I get that. And I mean, justices hear cases argued by their former firms that they used to totally. be a part of, like on yes. a regular basis on a regular basis. These are the biggest appellate SCOTUS shops in DC. And naturally this is where they come from. But I'm just wondering if there's any universe where maybe it's not Jane Roberts's situation, but it's like Mm -hmm. an ongoing continuous relationship where every year or so, and maybe this is totally just not how legal recruiting works at all, but like Mm -hmm. every Mm -hmm. year she's getting repeated six figure payments from a Wilmer Hale, from a Mm -hmm. Arnold Porter, what have you. Does that change things a little bit? Or I just I mean, want to kind of push back. She might be. Yeah. She, might, she might. The thing is, is that, so there's no like, there's no world in which Jane Roberts is just like being paid by these firms, right? For no placement. If she's bringing them a talented candidate, that person will get placed. Just like if I bring them a talented candidate, that person will get placed and get a fee, right? So she has to actually bring them talent. It's not like, uh, Wilmer Hale has Jane Roberts on retainer and says, like, here's a million dollars. Bring us your best people because we work 100 percent on contingency. Although, gosh, I should say that, like, with the lawyer caveat of I don't really know what the McRae fee agreements <laughs> look like. We don't. This is not like an antitrust. We've all agreed to some agreement because they can make their own agreements with firms. I should say that I would be truly shocked if there was some sort of like continuous payment to Jane Roberts by a firm that regularly appears before Justice Roberts. I would because the relationship be is with the, the relationship is with the applicant, right? Like that's kind of how this is structured. And it's only when the applicant comes to the firm that they get paid. Exactly. It's all right. contingency, right? So like there's no if if Jane Roberts tomorrow stopped bringing any successful candidates to Wilmer Hale, Wilmer Hale is not paying Jane Roberts any money. Like that's how this works. So she has to actually have talent that she places at these firms in order to make any compensation from it. So I think one point where Jimmy was headed with that question is that, so there's this 2009 opinion, right? About um, when a judge should recuse themselves um, if their spouse is a legal recruiter. Um, And it talks about continuous um, placements, uh, continuous arrangement or like, big money arrangements, right? Um, And I think there's also this question of like, well, if there's certain arrangements like that with um, Mrs. Roberts, uh, should the chief justice be forced to disclose those in greater detail um, just for transparency's sake? I mean, they could. They could say, hey, my wife made $500,000 from Wilmer Hill last year. Does right? that change, like, though, the business for her? Um, because I know so so much of this well, like, yeah. is not, like, you know, being kind of touted from the mountaintop of, like, who recruiters work with. And usually the candidates are, yes. you know, not so it's super interesting. well known. She definitely takes, like, a more old school approach, which is, like, keeping her candidates private. I would say, like, there's definitely a, a, a school and Whistler 
my firm falls in this school. Like we, we tout the partners that we place. Like we don't keep that a secret. We we've, if a partner says it's okay for us to say, we make an announcement, like we're so happy to work with this person. And we do put that out there. Um, I think for her, you know, maybe for her clientele, because they're coming out of government, they don't quite want, like the other thing is that you can work backwards from the fee, right? Like if it was to say, oh, she placed so-and-so at Wilmer and that fee was $500,000, like you know what the person now makes, right? Mm -hmm. So like, that's tricky. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I could see them being cautious. Like we don't say, oh, Whistler placed, you know, John Doe at X firm and we made a fee of X. We just say, hey, we placed John Doe at X firm, right? Um, and I could see how, yeah, that would be problematic for her candidates. Do they don't want their comp disclosed? I get that. Right. I would definitely try be trying to do the math on like the six hundred and like <laughs> yeah. seventy five thousand fee that it, she got right? and figure like, out who it was and how much they're 100%. getting. hundred <laughs> percent. You could do it. Like it's not rocket science. It's twenty. You know, it's. The, I I guess the the one hiccup that you might not know is that like what we all don't know is she's a partner at McCray, right? So she has she may have a totally different fee arrangement than your classic like fifty fifty or sixty forty split. So it, you might not be able to get the exact dollar figure amount. But if you knew what McRae received for the placement, then you would know what the person made, give or take, like a with a, within a bandwidth. Um, look, I think is it any different than than saying like, "Hey, I had um, I went on vacation and stayed at this person's beach house. I went to or I went I I we you know we were guests at the beach house of somebody who worked at Wilmer, and that." beach house vacation would have been worth a hundred thousand dollars. Like I don't, the justices don't do that. Right. We don't parse down their behavior to that level. We leave some discretion to the judiciary for better or for worse, for them to be the ones to arbitrate their own, you know, by following the ethics opinions of what is a conflict and what they feel that they can be completely unbiased on. Now, I don't think that they're necessarily staying at the beach house of somebody who regularly appears before them. But again, the analogy is she's also not placing folks who regularly appear before them. She's placing folks at those firms. Right. And so like, can a justice never have a social engagement with any lawyer who works at Wilmer? Uh, I don't know. Like that seems sort of preposterous to me. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does. We're talking about different sums of money, obviously. Like, but the, the rules are not about like, oh, well, if you get more than a thousand dollars from it, then your ethics might be compromised. But if it's less, you know what I mean? At at least to my, to my knowledge, they don't break it down like that. But like, what if a justice went to somebody's like summer house in the South of France and they went and stayed there. And that person is a lawyer who doesn't appear before the court, but works at a firm where lawyers appear before the court. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Like. I don't know, kind of sounds not that different than what's going on here. We're just talking about different amounts of money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the so the recusal statute, which on its face, I guess, applies to justices, says that a justice shall disqualify himself in any proceeding in which his impartiality might reasonably be questioned. Exactly. It, it is hard to kind of sometimes, and I think uh, law professor Amanda Frost was quoted in the New York Times story on this as saying, like, it's hard to really draw the line and see how this would actually corrupt his vote. And we, and we kind right. of place that in a conversation around ethics of potential conflicts of 
justices' spouses, and you contrast a situation like Jane Roberts with a situation like, let's just pick Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas and the work, the advocacy work that she has done over the years when it comes to things like overturning the Affordable Care Act or um, in abortion issues or right. most recently in <laughs> like, the 2020 election in election litigation. It's like yes. between the two, which one is more likely to create a, an appearance of impartiality? Of course. I mean, that's why all of this feels a little silly to me. Like Jane Roberts has been a recruiter for 20 years. I actually think like of all the justices, people have Justice Roberts is the one where from both sides, like, okay, he's he's a pretty straight era, right? Like, I would be truly shocked. I'm sure that they're like totally rolling their eyes about this story. Like, this is truly ridiculous. As somebody who places lawyers at, for a career, if I asked my law professor husband about any of my placements, he'd be like, who? Like, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't know who these lawyers are. He doesn't care. Like it assumes that they're going home and saying, I placed so-and-so at X firm and that case is before you. Like it's actually, a. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, like it's actually describing like a level of detail to other people's lives that I would personally be shocked that Justice Roberts is paying attention to or like even recognizes is going on, right? Like he is, he... I guarantee that when somebody from Wilmer is standing up at the podium, he is not thinking, oh, yeah, my wife placed somebody at Wilmer two years ago and got a big fee for it. Like, that's not something having lived with somebody who, you know, has a judicial kind of I'm using air quotes, but like judicial mindset or like academic mindset they're not paying that close attention to the names of the firms. They just don't. Like if I told Steve, I'm like, oh, that person's at Wilmer. He'll be like, or he'll say like, oh, that person's at Wilkie. And I'm like, no, they're at blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, whatever. Same thing. Like they, they, he doesn't, they don't pay attention at that level. So that's another thing, just kind of like an inside baseball. I bet you he's does not think about this, which is why it's particularly funny. And also, I don't know. It kind of seems like a bitter ex um, employee who's like, raising all these issues, right? Yeah, that is another uh, interesting detail in this whole um, drama, which is that he had sued Major Lindsay, which is where they'd both worked right. together, and Roberts as well in that lawsuit right. um, over his dismissal. Right. And so I don't know this guy. I know zero about their personal relationship. I'm not going to like guess, but it also kind of is a little bit of a head scratcher of like why 20 years into her career, when there's been zero indication that the places where she has made large placements have given an advantage to the firm, right? Like we don't have that data, do we? I, I don't we don't have that so. data. I, I will say this though, kind of to the point that you're making, and and Jimmy had had kind of talked about this, which is like at least for me personally, I wonder if this would have ever been raised a couple of years back. Um, yeah. I think the current time and the current attention being brought to judicial reform, to the transparency of the court, um, it just kind of is making this perfect storm where this particular piece of information can be like lobbed and perhaps garner more attention than it might have maybe five or 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think, 
Certainly the court is under more scrutiny now than it has been in modern history for a long time, right? We have huge blockbuster opinions coming out um, and it makes people antsy. With that being said, I'm not taking that away from anybody. Anybody can question the court. My husband has made a career about questioning the court, but this aspect of it, like this tiny little piece, which is what you guys asked me to talk about, to me, to go back to Jimmy's original question, yes, I think that this is a nothing burger. I think that who Jane Roberts places at other firms that happen to appear before the court when it is not the direct placement, and even if it were, we would we could talk about even if that were it, but certainly just like any old lawyer at the firm, that to me is not something that I think would affect Justice Roberts' ability to impartially decide a case. So to go to the ethics opinion and the language of the ethics opinion, I do not think that it is triggered. Karen, thank you so much for joining us yeah. and for helping to just break this all down for us um, and kind of get a sense of how the recruiting world operates. Yes. If you had asked me on Monday if I was going to be on a podcast talking about Jane Roberts and the ethics of Justice Roberts, like I would be like, no, that's so silly. So that's why when I see this story come out, I'm just rolling my eyes. And I would love to one day be as successful as Jane Roberts is. And I'll, you know, if, and I don't think that my husband will be on the Supreme Court. So that's, <laughs> I guess I'm dodging that bullet. Well, thank you for also com becoming the first uh, husband and wife pair to both have featured as guests of thank the you. Turn podcast. Yes. Not at the same time. No, not yeah. at the same time. I don't think we've actually mentioned Steve on the podcast yet. But yes, Steve Vladek, obviously a, a former guest. And yeah, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, it was a blast. Thank you, guys. That was an illuminating conversation, I think, uh, with Karen. So glad we had her on. Um, but Jimmy, I think that just ra about wraps us up for this week. I believe so. Um, we will be back next week with a special episode. Um, but until then, thank you, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our special guest, Karen Vladek. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, if you like us, please leave us a review.